0: Now, we've been talking about happiness, right? This is a series of sermons on happiness. And we've been moving through pretty much the Old Testament and now into the New Testament regarding what does Scripture tell us? And it tells us very clearly that God is a happy person, that he gives happiness to us as a gift, that Non human creatures are even capable of expressing happiness, right? We've already looked at some of those things. We've looked at a constellation of terms that the New Testament throws at us that also depict happiness. And you'll remember what some of those are. There's quite a list of them. We're not going to go through them uh, in, in an entirety here today. But you'll remember that the word Makarios on the right hand side, you see. That's the word that is translated most often happiness, not only in the Greek version of the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. It should be translated that way. All these words in this constellation, the Bible is full of words depicting happiness. And then, of course, we looked at Matthew's version of Jesus' you know, Sermon on the Mount, and, and there we saw Jesus describing people who are truly happy. And he says that they're poor in spirit and those who mourn and the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then he offers each of these groups, people as it were, promises. Incredible, incredibly rich promises. And we asked ourselves, are we attracted to God? When we see the things that God promises to us, if we choose to follow him, are we choosing to follow him? Are we attracted to God? And then, of course, do the words on the left side of the screen, do they depict your life? Do they depict your life? Are you a person hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Are you a person who is a peacemaker? Are you pure in heart? Jesus used other words to depict happiness. Happiness. So you can see the list is growing. I only want to illustrate two of these words. Here's one Greek word that means extremely joyful. And here's an example of when it is used, Luke 10, 21. At that same hour, Jesus rejoiced. Now notice what the meaning of the word is. Extremely rejoiced. At that same hour, Jesus extremely rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. But what I really want to do for just a couple of minutes is explore an avenue of happiness that I'm sure many of us could guess exists, and it has to do with love. Love's relationship to happiness. Most of us have heard that the Bible uses a word for love that expresses an unconditional kind of love, a love that that isn't attached to what a person is or what a person does, but rather a love that expresses itself because the person who does so chooses to love the other. That word is agape. The verbal firm verbal form of the word agape is agapao. Agapao. So I want to track with you just a little bit, because it also means to take pleasure in, and that obviously has strong connections to happiness, how this word is used as applied to Jesus. In Mark ten twenty one, Jesus looking at someone, you remember who this person is? The rich young ruler. Very good. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said, you lack one thing. The only reason Jesus said to him, you lack one thing, is because he loved him. He said, this is what I want you to do, and then come follow me. In John 11, verse 5, we learn that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You have close friends, family, people who you love, right? You all do? People who you love. Jesus did as well. John 13, verse 1. Now, before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Have you ever met someone who's given up on someone else? Maybe you've even done that person. You know, there's someone in your life who's, who's caused you some difficulties. You originally did care for them, but you no longer care for them. Having loved his own who were in this world, Jesus loved them to the end something instructive in there, I think, for us. John 13, 23, one of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. John 13, 34, so now, Jesus speaking, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Jesus wanting us to live in the arena of happiness tells us that we need to love other people as he has loved us. But in this, he clearly expresses that he loves us. John 14:21. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me, and those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Do you show your love for God by keeping his commandments in spirit and in truth? John 14:31 But do but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus wanting to make very clear that he had a relationship of love with God. John 15, 9, As the Father has loved me, now we learned how the Father has loved Jesus in return, so I have loved you. That is an incredible statement in and of itself. It's saying to us that God the Father, whose love is pure and absolute and strong, never-ending, As God has loved Jesus, so Jesus has loved other people. That would be a powerful, powerful love to experience, wouldn't it? John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Well, the call then for us to love other people is incredibly strong. In essence, we are to love other people... As God the Father loved Jesus, and as Jesus has loved us. Strong line connecting them, the three of them. And then, of course, this word is used to describe the disciple whom Jesus loved multiple times. But the Gospels are not the only books in the Bible that speak about the love of Jesus for other people. If we were to continue going on in the New Testament, we would read Romans eight thirty seven. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Galatians 2.20, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved, say that again, who loved, loved louder, who loved, who loved me, who loved me. And gave himself for me. Ephesians 1 verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace that he freely poured out on us in the beloved, in Jesus, his dearly loved son. Ephesians 5 2. Live a life filled with love. That's agape. Following the example of Christ. He loved us. And offered himself as a sacrifice for us. Ephesians five twenty five. Husbands, love your wives. How much? In what kind of quality? As Christ loved, right the church. (laughs) Hebrews one verse nine. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of what? Of gladness, of happiness. When a person loves righteousness and hates wickedness, guess what? They live the happy life according to Scripture. Revelation 1.5. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Revelation 3.9. And they will learn that I have loved you. Speaking about those people (laughs) who uh, belong, as it were, to the synagogue of Satan and other ways, other, other groups. Wow, some powerful love going on. Across then the entire New Testament, Jesus is said to love other people. He said to love us over and over again. This comment rings true. Jesus loves us. This we know, for the Bible tells us so. Over and over again, it tells us so. Now, very clearly then, the Greek word to love has the essence of happiness in it, for it also means to take pleasure in. Jesus' love for us is capable of making us extremely happy. Now, we could go on in this vein. We could. But I want to move into looking at happiness, especially in the book of Luke and just a little bit in the book of Acts. And here is where we see at times, a different kind of happiness. And that different kind of happiness shows up if we were to just look at uh, statements like, happy are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. That's a different kind of happiness, very clearly. When people give me a bad time, I don't usually leap for joy. Do you? And when you look at Acts 5.41, and we'll look at this a little bit more later, the apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. What we're going to discover later is uh, what preceded their rejoicing. These passages depict a different kind of happiness. Now, there are lots of words that depict happiness uh, throughout Luke in the book of Acts, but happiness plays a really big role in at least three places in the Gospel of Luke. And that would be Luke chapters 1 and 2, Luke chapter 15, and Luke chapter 6. In Luke 1 and 2, there are two events where happiness is seriously depicted. And we need to set the stage. We've got the Jewish people. They've been seriously oppressed. They've been beaten up by the Romans. They're living under their tyranny on a regular basis. There is a reason why Jesus said, when someone says, carry this load for a mile, carry it too. Can you imagine what it would be like if in the normal course of your day, someone came up to you and handed you something heavy and said, You're going to pack this for me. And you had to stop whatever you were doing and carry it. You'd be gritting your teeth, Uh, maybe grinding your teeth. Uh, I don't want to do this. I hate you. You wouldn't like that opportunity at all. And so they're living under the heavy hand of Rome, And they have, a because of that, I think a very heightened, pervasive expectation that there's going to be some divine deliverance coming that matches the timing of biblical prophecy, and boy, are they eagerly looking forward to it. I want to illustrate these just a little there, what was going on in the mind. In Luke chapter 1, verse 71, this is John the Baptist's father, I think, speaking, and he says, now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. Is he looking forward to having Rome stepped on? Yes, he is, very clearly. Luke 3.15, because of that, and the other things going on in Scripture, everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon. In fact, they were expecting the Messiah so easily, so readily, so eagerly, that when John the Baptist was born, they were hoping that this boy was... He, the Messiah, the man who would deliver them. What they got at this time, two babies, two babies. Now, my neighbor knows what it's like to have two babies at the same time. She's got a set of twins. Every time I see her jump out of the car, she has to load one up in one arm and load one up in the other arm. And and when I do that, I, I... I say, boy, she's got a handful. Wow, two babies. But what's incredible as we read Luke 1 and 2, we discover that the births of Jesus and John were incredibly happy occasions. We read in Luke 2, 10 and 11, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. Who's he speaking to? Shepherds. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to how many people? What kind of joy? Great. great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Scripture is very clear Jesus' birth is an event that brings great joy, lots of happiness to everyone. Period. Now, what is said about Jesus' birth is also said about John's. It's a little less powerful in its reach, but nevertheless, in Luke chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, we read, but the angel said, don't be afraid, Zachariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And so the birth of these two little babies is forecasted as something that will bring a lot of happiness. A lot of happiness. Why? Why? Why will many people rejoice at the birth of John the Baptist? I started thinking on that for a little while. And it seemed to me that the reason, the biggest reason why people would rejoice because of the birth of John would be because of what kind of person he was. This is John the Baptist speaking about Jesus. Notice his willingness to take a serious back seat. Here's a man who was drawing thousands of crowds to listen to him, and yet clearly was quite willing to be much lesser known so that Jesus could be front and center. He must increase, but I must decrease. I believe that the unselfishness of John the Baptist is the reason why many people experienced great joy at his birth. It was because John embodied a selfless spirit all the time. Now, can we say the same thing about Jesus? What might this tell us, if we can... Uh, see that, say that, what might this tell us about how to live a happy life? If you and I are, are becoming less and less selfish people, then we are going to be much more happy as we go through our day-to-day routines, right? And how about the people around us? Are they going to be happy as we grow more unselfish? I think so. We can certainly answer this question about Jesus and his relationship to unselfishness, right? The reason why his birth is going to bring great joy to all people is because he came and was the quintessential example of unselfishness. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom, we read. Here we have then the two best examples of the unselfish life, I think, in the New Testament. And what happens? As a result of their unselfishness, they bring other people a great deal of joy, both qualitatively and quantitatively. There is an unbreakable connection between great joy and selflessness. That's what I believe. In Luke chapter 15, we read not one, not two, but three very powerful stories. Parables, we call them. They start out, it starts out, Luke 15 does, with the parable of the lost sheep. That would be r- upper right-hand corner if you're looking at the pictures. The parable of the lost sheep, then the parable of the lost coin, and finally the parable of the prodigal or the lost son. And all of these stories teach us that not only is God a very happy person, but he gives happiness away as a gift to others. In these stories, we also see a very sharp contrast that is drawn between the very happy Jesus and the extremely unhappy Pharisees and legal Jewish legal experts of Jesus' day. The story of the lost son, in fact, leads to the title of the sermon today. The story of the lost son ends with, we had to celebrate and rejoice. We had to. Let's explore this a little bit. In Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, we read, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were doing what? Does that sound like happy people? grumbling. They were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so here the sharp contrast is drawn between Jesus's unselfish, happy life and the life of other people. In these three stories, Jesus tells people who is it that's going to occupy the kingdom of God? Who's actually going to heaven? And he also answers literally the question. Is there just going to be a few people saved? And when he does that, he answers this question again about who is really living a happy life right now. Who's doing it? And what he's saying is this. Happiness, as it's lived out throughout the entire universe and and, on planet Earth, happiness comes. Happiness comes from following God and living the unselfish life that God lives, which is a very happy life. The lost sheep tells us the story of a shepherd who loses just one, just one of 100 sheep, right? And he goes in a painful search of that sheep. He risks his life, literally, to find that sheep, climbing over steep banks, making his way across nasty cliffs, rocks, no doubt tears himself up badly in the doing of it. And when he has found the lost sheep, it says he lays it on his shoulders, and he does what? He rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Do you rejoice when someone enters the the door of the church? I can remember one person came up to me one time, not here, but in another church. said, whoa, that person who sat next to me in church today, they reeked of smoke. And I said, yeah, I wish the whole sanctuary did. I don't think that was what they were expecting. I even told a church group one time who were concerned about, you know, if only such and such would come back. He, he has a smoking problem. And I'm not sure they, they told me if, if he could even stand, you know, the going you know, without a smoke break between Sabbath school and church. And I said to them, Have you considered putting an ashtray outside the sanctuary so he could smoke that one cigarette and then come back and join us? And they were like, whoa, are you kidding me? No, I'm not. Do you think it's going to be easier for this guy to stop smoking when he is attending church or when he isn't? Which do you think? Do you rejoice when the lost are saved? Whatever their problems might be. Then we move in. Luke 15, I think it's about like verses 8, 9, and 10 or so. There's a woman. She spends her days taking care of her home and her family. And one day she discovers, to her horror, that some of her money is gone. She cannot find it. This is the money that she has to take care of herself should something ever happen to her husband. She's desperate to find it. And the Bible says she cleans that house super thoroughly. My wife and I had a busy week and we're having company this Sabbath. We were kind of hoping this lady would show up. We could use her skills to clean our house. She cleans her house super thoroughly and the Bible says she finds this lost coin. And what happens when she found it? She calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Again, Are you happy when someone shows up that's unexpected to you? Maybe to a religious event. Unexpected to you. That kind of person showing up is surprising. Are you happy? And then, of course, we get to the story of the lost son, the prodigal son. And we discover after quite a bit that the father is quite the guy quite the person, looking day after day, day after day, for that lost son. And it's actually the father's love that draws the boy back, right? And when the boy comes back, they throw him a big party. The older brother gets very unhappy about this. And the father says to his other son, we had to celebrate and rejoice. We just had to. Because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Now the point of of these three stories, Jesus says, is I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God again, over one person whose life is changed by God. Now, the depiction here very clearly is that heaven is an extremely happy place, constantly joying and celebrating over people. How have we missed this through the years? In fact, this was Jesus' point when some guy came out and says, Jesus, is it true that only a few Few people are going to be saved. Do you know how Jesus answered that question ultimately? He said, listen, people will come from all over the world, from east and west, north and south, to recline, the Greek says. And whenever that term is used, it means to recline and feast. They reclined when they ate the feast of the Passover. To recline in the kingdom of God. In other words, heaven is a place of celebration and happiness, and there's going to be a whole lot of people partying together when Jesus returns. That was his point. Now, by not telling us how the older brother responded to the father's plea to join him in celebrating and rejoicing, the door is left open for you and I to begin to say, what kind of people do we want to be? Do we we want to be the kind of unselfish folk who are constantly happy and who want other people also to be happy? Do we want to be that kind of person? Or do we want to be some sourpuss, always serious, never very nice or kind kind of person? In Luke chapter 6, We have Jesus' sermon, not on the mount, but on the plain. And there we hear again these interesting, odd sort of expression, happier are those people who are poor, happier are those who are hungry, happier are those who weep. And there's a constellation of happy words that are associated with these statements by Jesus. And Jesus isn't really telling people how things ought to be, Jesus is saying, this is how things really are. Are you kidding? It's rather startling for most of us to realize that we can be happy even when we're going through times in our lives where, well, most of these times it seems, seems to us to make us miserable instead. Jesus pretty much nailed this down when he said, when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and defame you, you can even leap for joy. Because the happiness that you possess as an unselfish, loving, kind God follower, the happiness you possess is so deep, so beautiful, that it allows you to express your joy Even when someone is really going after you. And I want you to notice the sharp contrast that Jesus draws. Happy are these kinds of people, super sad are these kinds of people. In Jesus' sermon, then we see a great reversal of expectations. And there's a lot of reversals that are scattered throughout both Luke and Acts. There's a reversal of the wedding banquet seating, where a person is not, you know, comes into the wedding banquet, they want to sit, sit themselves you know, right up front where they can get the most honor and attention. And Jesus says, don't do it, take the worst seat in the house. And then when the host comes in, Perhaps they'll elevate you, and you'll get even greater honor. And then there's the dinner invitations to the poor, where Jesus says, you know, if you really want to enjoy the happy life, instead of inviting people to your house who can always, you know, respond in kind, invite the poor and the lame and the weak. There's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. (laughs) Totally different. One guy's a poor beggar, the other guy's filthy rich. Yet their situation is reversed. And then, of course, there's the chapters that speak about the death and then exaltation of Jesus. I would say that was a huge reversal of expectation. And as we move into the biblical book of Acts, we discover the apostles leaving the high council, rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to be mistreated. And notice this picture shows them bloody. Why? Why? What happened before they started rejoicing? They were beaten. They were beaten. And they went out rejoicing. Wow. Clearly, happiness is a huge deal in Scripture. When God and good triumph, the Bible consistently celebrates. God celebrates. Given this reversal of expectations, are we really on God's side of things when we celebrate? Are we really standing for God and the right? Uh, Are we celebrating the wrong things instead? Things that really don't make God that happy. Are you and I happy? Are we really happy? Do we know that Jesus loves us? That he wants to make us happy? That our happiness is actually Jesus' biggest goal. The thing he went to the cross for. Now he has a different perspective on happiness, Jesus does. But he claims that his portrayal of happiness is actually the real deal. Do we live like Jesus and John? Do Do we adopt the unselfish life? Do we bring other people happiness? Do we look for lost people? I think someone once said that, uh, you know, anymore, and this involves me as much as you, but any more people come to church and they think that's what God wants them to do. That's all that God wants them to do as a Christian, is just to come to church. But the Bible talks about looking for lost people as the way to become happy. So I ask again, are we happy? really happy? Have you and I joined those who literally have to celebrate? They have to celebrate and rejoice. We're so happy that we simply cannot bottle it up inside. It just spills out all the time. Even amidst our various problems, which sometimes can be quite severe, we are still happy, or we can be. Are you happy like this? What would it take for you to be happy like this? Jesus said, come follow me. Come follow me. Let's pray. Father God. Thank you so much for sending your son Jesus that each one of us here might experience every day a huge measure of happiness. We want you to pour out joy and rejoicing such that it just bubbles up out of us routinely. People are drawn to our happy spirit, to our happy homes, to our happy churches, to our happy schools. Father God, work in our hearts and turn us into